Dr. Doak. Dr. Yo. Doak, I've asked you some form of this question before. I'm going to ask you again, Ooh. which is if you were to start your own religion. My own religion? How would you do it? Oh, man. I would think the basic building blocks of a religion would have to be, I don't know, there'd have to be some kind of idea, some central like thing. Okay. And then I guess I would have a place or a building and I would just try to like rally people into that space and give them food and money. <laughs> Is that a bad way? <laughs> you wouldn't take their money? I think that that's... Well, I think at first, I don't know. I, I was just trying to think through it. I, yeah. I've never thought about this right. question before. <laughs> uh, maybe I would... Maybe I would, would it not be super creepy if I was like, oh, here's exactly what I would do. Uh, here's exactly yes. what I've done. I mean, what I would do. Uh, <laughs> da -da -da -da. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. I ask you that question because welcome students to the Need to Know More podcast for Theo 102, where we are talking about this big word scattered. Need to know more about how the church gets scattered. This is what we're doing yes. in the next 25 minutes. Yes, I wanted to frame our discussion in terms of this meta question, which is what do you need to survive, mm. to create and then thrive and survive oh. as a religious movement? Right. We're studying, the students are exploring an era wherein the Christian movement is having to ask those big and tough questions because right. the life that they had known before in the very early days of the movement, it was centered in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. It really was centered around traditional Jewish worship practices, right. places. Right. And then, and the vast majority of people who were Christians were Jews. Right. And then all of a sudden, they get expelled from the center. Right. And then what do they do? Right. Well, the, I mean, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD is so cataclysmic. I mean... It, and, it, and and tragic for both Judaism and Christianity in different ways, for yes. sure. Probably more so in the historical imagination of Judaism. But it's one of these moments where things just get broken up because the Romans came in and literally killed like, I don't know, like a hundred thousand people or more. Ugh. I mean, hundreds of thousands. I mean, I don't know the exact estimate, but it, it was it was a traumatic physical event. But then also, you know, the way that places function as centers of belief and thought and belonging. And then if that doesn't exist anymore... What happens? I think of it in terms of, you know, when students are in college, at least I, I experience this, there's this moment where you leave your home mm -hmm. and if you come back, your home isn't really the same. Right. Um, but in your mind, there's, there's a way that your home is in your imagination, yep. if it's relatively stable. Um, and it's really sad when that's over, like when that's right. disrupted. And so I think of that times 1 million, totally. like the, these people, their spiritual home, they're the place where the presence of God for Jews dwells. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it's destroyed and they're, they are expelled. Yep. Um, it, it changed both Christianity and Judaism in amazing fundamental ways. Has it, uh, how does, where does the year 70 AD live in the life of a biblical scholar? Like what's the, what's its significance oh. for your field? Oh yeah. Well, so for those who deal um, with the old Testament as their primary scholarly focus, which is mine, you really are dealing with what you might call. A, 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 so a lot of us deal with like the first temple or even before, like the origins of ancient Israel. Okay. And as we will recall from last semester, they don't get a temple until Solomon. 
if you want to put a date on this, you could think like in the 900s BC, mm-hmm. but then that temple is destroyed in 586 BC, as you will recall, another, you know, the first instantiation of this tragic event, the Babylonians. This is why the B- Babylon and Rome are like yoked together symbolically. They're the two destroyers of the temple. Mm-hmm. Then though, there are a group of, of Old Testament scholars and really scholars of ancient Judaism who would study the second temple period, which would be like from the building of that second temple around maybe 515 BC, something like that, all the way to 70 AD. But those are really different periods. Like the way that 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 Judah or Judea would have been in the sixth century BC versus what it would have been in the first century AD. I mean, you see huge changes there. And so um, really you're into the realm of now New Testament scholarship. And most New Testament scholars think all of the books of the New Testament really were written within decades just before or during or after this really tragic um, event. And so, and and actually Old Testament scholars tend to think that a lot of the books of the Old Testament may have achieved their final form, even if they used earlier materials and stories around the time of the destruction of the first temple. So these temple destructions are really kind of like a catalyst for the Bible in terms of its authorship and, and bringing it together as a book because during times of crisis, you start to like get, you know, get, get things together, collect the family record as it were. I think that's, that makes a lot of sense to me, especially when you think about, you know, in your very first um, answer to how you would form a religion, you talked about gathering people together and then doing something, right? Right, Eating, you know, collecting money or distributing money. Um, (laughs) And I think that, um, I I think you're absolutely right. One of the fundamental things that people in, in, um, sociology or in history, we usually define religion in some form as beliefs and practices, Very belief-centric. Right? Yeah, yeah, and practice-oriented, right? Mm-hmm. So you need to get together and you do something. Mm-hmm. Well, if you are if you lose a temple, if you lose the center of your, your practical space, mm-hmm. then texts seem like a really good um, way of coping with that because... Mm-hmm. If you have a text, it kind of it can hold a, a community together. And of course, in the ancient sure. world, not very many people could read, so you would hear it recited. Mm-hmm. You would that would be a kind of way to be together that doesn't depend on a temple or that's right. any like any physical sacrifice. I want to I want to pitch an idea to you and see what you think about it. I've heard um, scholars, New Testament scholars, talk about the the writings that Christians did or early Christians did about. Um, the the role of the church as the body of Christ and not the temple. I've heard that that described as a way of coping with that mm. destruction. Does mm-hmm. that sound right to you? Yeah, I mean, as a psychological approach, certainly to the text. I mean, and it's not unholy or undivine in some way for Christians to say that the literature has elements of trauma and coping in it. Right, like even in the New Testament, you see these letters that Paul has written and others. I mean. These are people living in hard, weird times. The book of Revelation was definitely written to some people who were hanging on, you know, right. by their fingernails in some cases to, to, to belief, but also to a place in their society that, um, where they didn't feel like they fit in. And so I don't think that coping is a bad way. I, I would think it would be bad for Christians to like reduce, to make a, a sociological or psychological reduction of our, of scripture, of, right. of our word of God to something like, well, it was a coping me- mechanism. Life was hard. So I don't think I, I, <laughs> right, not, neither of, of us would put it that way. No, but, um, to think of it in terms of like, you know, that this is a community response and that, yeah, the text really becomes, I mean, biblical scholars have often talked about the way that, that texts functioned in ancient Israel, that it was like, 
so Israel was forbidden from having an image of God, mm. but the text kind of becomes God's, it becomes the physical item that you can have. Mm. And really today, if you go to a Jewish synagogue, the scroll, the Torah scroll is, there's a, there's a grand procession and it's held aloft and it's, you can see it. It's, it's, it's not an idol. It's not, it's not a, it's not a, um, you know, a figure of a deity, but it's like the text becomes this meeting place. And I think Christians who go to church today definitely recognize that idea that wherever you open scripture, whether you're in a living room or a grand cathedral, like there you are reading the word of God. It's funny that you bring that up because um, we talked a little bit about this, I think, last semester, but the, this idea that after the destruction of the temple, um, Jews, how they ended up reorganizing themselves without a temple was primarily around the synagogue. Mm-hmm. So if, if students, if you remember those characters, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, mm-hmm. if you're a Sadducee and you're primarily associated with the temple, you don't really have, like, where do you go after that, right? So the right. rabbis and Jews that practice today, most of them trace their heritage back to Pharisees. Isn't that right? Well, yeah. And I mean, like intellectually, not yeah, necessarily. certainly intellectually. And there's, there are a series of rabbis of early Jewish teachers whose works become enshrined in the Talmud um, and, and in the Mishnah. The Mishnah is like a commentary on the Torah. Mm. And then there's also a commentary on the Mishnah. So you see this like this chain of, of commentary and of interpretation, which was so important in Judaism and also becomes important in Christianity. That is well. that is so fun to me. I love reading this like ongoing conversation and arguments about the scripture. Oh yeah. That that makes the scripture feel alive to me. Oh, this yeah. idea that people have been arguing and also agreeing and and elaborating and yep. reapplying these ancient ideas in every era. That oh, that's one yeah. of the, the fun parts I think about exploring oh, the history of, totally. of any tradition. Here's something I think a lot of people don't know about. If you read some of these early Jewish writings and many of these conversations enshrined in these writings do go back to the first, second century AD, these writings um, have debates between rabbis, Jewish thinkers and leaders that sound in some cases a lot like the kind of debates Jesus had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So I love that. Jesus was a Jewish you know, rabbi, he was a leader who was doing this kind of stuff that you can actually see was going on in Judaism from that time. Now, there are some key differences between, so I love the scholarship that puts Jesus in his Jewish context, and that is so important. Mm -hmm. And also there are some key differences, at least when it comes to the followers of Jesus, they start to diverge Mm -hmm. from from, um, Jews who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah Mm -hmm. and the arrival of of God in flesh. Um, and so Christians start doing different things. I mean, of course the new Testament records a lot of that stuff. Like, should they eat meat sacrificed to idols? Should they be circumcised? You know, there's all these conversations about how Jewish you should be and then how Christian you should be. Um, I think it's, don't you think it's interesting how these two, I've heard there's this historian, Daniel Boyarin. I know you're a fan of, of his work who talks about them. Um, and then I think a guy named J.C. Smith who talks about them as sister traditions, sure. not necessarily like mother, child. It's interesting to see how those those movements have developed. They chose different, or maybe maybe they didn't choose, maybe the, the moment chose them, like different ways of organizing and surviving over time. Totally, totally. And I think that, well, you know, and, and this is part of the big problem. Like once once Christians start to spread around that Mediterranean world, I love how in the Turning Points book, third edition, Decisive Moments in the History yes. of Christianity, Mark Knoll, um, there's a map. I love a good map. Don't you love yes, a map? Yes, I do too, actually. There's a map there. And so you start to look at this map and you're like, 
okay, like this, this is now going to be a worldwide religion. And we know today, like how Christianity has spread, but like, how does that happen and where does it go? And there are the things that you can't really do or can you do? And so to, to watch each group, um, basically to watch Christians, you know, get organized and figure out like what it actually means. I mean, a lot of the new Testament, like the letters of Paul are really just about this one topic. How can you be a Christian if you're not a Jew? That's exactly right. That's basically the only question that they're addressing. Like, like the book of Romans, this, this intense theological treatise, it's just like, okay, is there, you know, he seems to be saying like, we know that, that Jesus came, Jesus was a Jew and he came to Jews. We know that Jews have a special place in God's plan. It's mysterious. And people debate today what Paul even meant about that place. But what are you supposed to do if you're not, if you're like this other, almost like another tree in this orchard and you have to have your branches grafted into this other tree. And it's like, it gets very confusing, right? To try to figure Mm -hmm. out what that means. Yeah. One of my favorite books that I've read about the apostle Paul is written by, okay, John, John Dominic Crossan. And there's this um, archaeologist, I can't remember his name, mm. Reed and Cross, Cross Reed? Reed. Anyway, R-E-D, Crossan and Reed. Crossan yeah, Reed. yeah, where go. they basically say that the reason why the Apostle Paul was ultimately so successful at what he did is because he appealed directly to God-fearers, Gentiles who were attracted to Judaism in some sort of way, like they liked the ethic, the writings, mm-hmm. some aspect of Jewish life, but they didn't want to take the plunge and totally become Jewish mm-hmm. for a lot of different reasons, probably anti-Jewish sentiment in ancient Rome and many things like that. Anyway, and so they basically, they argue that Paul was really good at what he did, not just because he was a brilliant rhetorician and, you know, have had all these amazing writings at people, but also his methodology. He, from the outset, had this idea that his eyes were on the Gentiles, Mm -hmm. which makes, it makes a sense that that Pauline form of Christianity Mm -hmm. ends up being the one that can make it after, after you know, they're kicked out of Jerusalem. Right. Like in business terms, you could say there was a market out there. there <laughs> right. Okay. But what about this language of like a market and all that kind of stuff? Like how should Christians think about that today? Like, are we, are we sort of forced to just look back and be like, well, I guess he made the right marketing moves or like, how do Christians think about the kind of spiritual or supernatural element of this spread and how and why it happened? Oh, well, I love that stuff. I'm, I don't know about you because I grew up in a movement that has a very high, this is a theology word, a very high pneumatology, which means we have a high view of the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit works through mm-hmm. humans. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts is the story of uh, the Holy Spirit descending and then all of a sudden this massive missions movement mm-hmm. happens. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I think that a traditional Christian approach is to look at at the spread of Christianity as not just great ideas, not just savvy missionary work, but also that something was happening to people. One of the things that students that are going to be reading this week um, is stories of people undergoing persecution mm. and then ultimately martyrdom. So they mm. are killed for bearing witness mm-hmm. to the person of Jesus. What would inspire someone? They're, the students are reading... Um, uh, an account of two martyrs, Perpetua and Felicitas, and they are, what would compel a person who's an upper-class Roman citizen mm-hmm. um, with children mm-hmm. to be killed in a Colosseum? Mm-hmm. Well, something, st- that that's an amazing thing. Like, I, I wouldn't die for very many things, oh, certainly man. while my children are small, you know? So I think that, that a, uh, from my perspective, a responsible reading is to say something was happening right. to these people right. to make them so 
you know, depending on how you look at it, her family thought crazy. Yeah. Um, and then her fellow Christians thought courageous. Right. Well, and I think too, for students, sometimes I run into stuff, you know, in teaching with students, especially in smaller group discussions where they want to say things like, okay, it's like, well, they want to come back and be like, well, why are we even talking about all these social and political reasons? Christianity just succeeded because God wanted it to succeed. <laughs> I, I guess I, my response to that is like, that's great. And that's totally true from a Christian perspective, but also to just say that it's, it's like, we're not really honoring our tradition or any of the tools God has given us to understand how, how the word became flesh functions in the world, like the real, real world gritty ways in which things work and happen. And so I do want to encourage us as we do our reading to just like really lean into it. And I'd be like, who even cares? It's just like, God just made it happen. It's like, well, God didn't make it happen all at once. And God didn't make it all happen everywhere at once. There must be something that we have to learn from this, this scattering. Well, and I think that the, the story of the martyrs invites us to ask those questions. Mm -hmm. Um, question it's, I think to just say, oh, God did it. Um, that might feel good, but it's ultimately dishonoring of, of, right. you know, our, our heritage. And if you are a Christian, if you confess Jesus as Lord, then you are, you claim these people as your family. Mm -hmm. So I think the way, to, a, a way to honor their memory is to explore their lives and to really, um, take a moment to, to think about why, you know, uh, what they were bearing witness to mm -hmm. and ultimately why it worked Hey, can I invite us to read a portion of the Ooh. witness of Perpetua and Felicity? I love it. So let's read a little bit of this account of two early Christian martyrs, two women from Africa. So if you remember, we, um, these, these women, Perpetua and Felicitas were, are, were from Tunisia, uh, what is now known as Tunisia. And, um, they, uh, so last week we read about, uh, a document that most scholars think is from Syria. So this gets at the global part of the church. So mm -hmm. here are two African women who are, um, you're going to read the story of their, um, their experience in prison their their own um, dilemmas about you know the, their thoughts that they have and the thoughts that their families have about their potential martyrdom and then eventually we get to the moment of their death. So Dr. Doke, I want to invite you to read with me the very last chapter of their lives. It's pretty short. Mm -hmm. um, chapter uh, the the very last moments of their lives mm -hmm. um, and section four mm -hmm. of chapter six. Mm -hmm. And then let's talk about it. I'm there. Okay. You want me to start? Yes. The same satirist at the other entrance exhorted the soldier Pudens saying, assuredly here I am as I have promised and foretold for up to this moment, I have felt no beast. And now believe with your whole heart. Lo, I'm going forth to that beast and I shall be destroyed with one bite of the leopard. And immediately at the conclusion of the exhibition, he was thrown to the leopard and with one bite of his, he was bathed with such a quantity of blood that the people shouted out to him as he was returning the testimony of his second baptism, saved and washed, saved and washed. Manifestly, he was assuredly saved who had been glorified in such a spectacle. Then to the soldier prudence, he said, farewell and be mindful of my faith and let not these things disturb you but confirm you. And at the same time, he asked for a little ring from his finger and returned it to him bathed in his wound, leaving to him an inherited token and the memory of his blood. 
And then, lifeless, he is cast down with the rest to be slaughtered in the usual place. And when the populace called for them in uh, and when the populace called for them into the midst, that as the sword penetrated into their body, they might make their eyes partners in the murder, they rose up of their own accord and transferred themselves whither the people wished. But they first kissed one another, that they might consummate their martyrdom with the kiss of peace. The rest, indeed, immovable and in silence, received the sword thrust, much more than Satyrus, who had first ascended the ladder and gave up his spirit, for he was also waiting for Perpetua. But Perpetua, that she might taste some pain, being pierced between the ribs, cried out loudly, and she herself placed the wavering right hand of the youthful gladiator to her throat. Possibly such a woman could not have been slain unless she herself had willed it, because she was feared by the impure spirit. O most brave and blessed martyrs. O truly called and chosen unto the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whom whoever magnifies and honors and adores assuredly ought to read these examples for the edification of the church, not less than the ancient ones, so that new virtues also may testify that one and the same Holy Spirit is always operating, even until now, and God the Father omnipotent and his Son Jesus Christ our Lord, who is the glory and infinite power forever and ever. Amen. Woo. Okay. So just to recap for the students, as you will have hopefully read this by now, this is a, a pretty intense story. It actually brings to mind the book of Revelation. It's bloody. It's violent. There's a lot of visions that happen. Mm-hmm. In fact, there are some mystical visions. Um, and we get this. We, we just read the climax here of, of Perpetua and Felicitas, and, or Felicity, depending on the translation. And then we see, um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'll be interested to see how the students, how you students respond. I wonder if this is disturbing at all. I wonder if this seems, um, like should, at the very end, the, the author calls for, stu- or for Christians to pay attention to, that mm-hmm. this is a really important writing. In fact, it, it wasn't, um, included in some forms of the canon early on. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did it strike you? Was it disturbing? Well, I think the case for this being disturbing would be to say, especially if you didn't understand, you didn't share the faith mm. of, 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 um, um, of Perpetua here, who's, who's being killed. I think Felicitas gets killed earlier in the narrative, mm-hmm. but Perpetua is the one who's left. And uh, if you don't understand her faith in that moment, you're just like, is this just like sadistic? Mm-hmm. Like people who just like, how could you throw away your life like that? Um, so that would be the case for it being disturbing and just thinking about the blood or this idea. Like they start saying when the person before um, Perpetua, I guess, is killed, this other person. Mm-hmm. I didn't quite catch who the other satirist. Per- oh, satirist. Okay. Um, saved and washed, saved and washed the being bathed with the blood, like the double mm-hmm. symbolism. Mm-hmm. So as he's, so as Satyrus is bleeding from wounds from a leopard, he, mm-hmm. the people, the Christians who are watching are saying, say, the, are those the people who shouted out to him? Are they other Christians? Is that the idea? Well, I think one of the things like the, the saved and washed language, I think one of the reasons why it stands out to me so much is this idea of Christian baptism being associated with blood mm-hmm. and not with water. Right. Like that's weird. You know, it, it it makes a certain sense if we think about it in terms of the book of Revelation. But this idea that your baptism is one, if you think about it, 
um, you know, when Jesus is crucified, he's, um, as, as a part of that process, the, the soldier pierces his side and blood and water runs out. Mm -hmm. And we typically think about baptism happening with water, but this isn't a case where it's happening with blood. That is just wow. Well, but it has the great, it has the symbolism back from the Passover of Exodus of the idea of being saved by blood and blood being smeared on something to show that it's been, been saved or redeemed or protected. So there's that. And then you also have the crucifixion. The, also the idea that you would wish blessings on or forgive your tormentors or killers Mm -hmm. is the classic Christian martyrdom moment because it goes right back to Jesus. So that's the thing you have to do. I remember learning that, you know, in the early days of the Christian movement, sometimes we think of, of these stories as something that people would seek, but actually one of the qualifications, cause there's always, you know, in, in religious movements, there can be people who are a little, um, they, they, they are a little imbalanced. They need a little bit of help and they might sure. seek something like this out. Right. And in the early versions of the church, they were pretty clear. Like this wasn't something that you ran after. Right. Um, you were chosen for martyrdom, martyrdom, like you didn't get to choose it. Right. Um, and so a martyr though, once chosen, you end up occupying a really important space. Like there are these records of Christians going to people who are in prison, who are about to be martyred, asking for favors for, um, because they believed that there's a section of Revelation, I think it's Revelation 13, where it talks about there are, I, I don't know actually if that's the right chapter, but there are are people who are sitting under the throne of God crying vengeance, vengeance, martyrs, people who have been killed for the name of Jesus. And so this idea was that if you if you have this baptism of Revelation blood- Revelation chapter six. By oh, the six, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have this baptism of blood, that gives you- an elevated place right. in the world to oh, come. Oh, I see. I see. So you would be one of those one of those people. Yeah. I think for Christians today, like for me, it's almost just because of the kind of social and political and economic situation that we're in. Um, it's it's almost inconceivable to think about facing something like this. But it's also there's something noble and beautiful about thinking like if I had to, could I have the kind of peace that they have? One of the most beautiful interpretations of the Lord's Prayer that I've heard was. Um, this idea that the line in the Lord's prayer where it says, and don't put a, or, and, and lead us not into temptation. Another way of translating that would be, and don't put us to the test, which some historians think is the Christian request. Please don't put me to the test. But if I am put to the test, please make sure I'm faithful. And I think that's a question for all Christians. Mm.